Paul is really dealing about wisdom. He's saying, listen, church uh, in Corinth, you've got a completely wrong understanding of wisdom. Okay, you're, you're desperate to be impressive. You're desperate to show off. You're desperate to show how clever you are. And Paul says, no, true wisdom is seen in the cross of Christ. In weakness, not in strength. In folly, not in human wisdom. Okay, we've been seeing that for the last few weeks. And we've heard that again and again. It's been rubbed in. What we're going to do is we're going to move into the second big section of um, 1 Corinthians, which runs from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter, um, chapter 11. And it's really all about freedom. So you've got a wrong understanding of wisdom, chapters 1 to 4. You've got a wrong understanding of freedom around sexuality and around some other stuff we'll do uh, probably after Christmas now. But freedom is a massive theme now that's going to come up. And we're going to begin to touch on that, but you'll see it loads more in the coming weeks. But just to give you a feel for how 1 Corinthians works, these are some of the big things. Um, And Paul is getting their thinking straight about wisdom, freedom, and then the third section is chapters 12 to 15, which is about spirituality. So get your thinking straight around these things, uh, is what Paul's saying. But we're coming to this passage, and my guess is, even as we read it, there's a little bit of us that goes, oh man, this doesn't feel very comfortable. And so I want to start with this question. And it's going to sound slightly weird to start with, but go with it. How heavy do you think God is? How much do you think he weighs? You might say to me, John, that's a very silly question because the Bible doesn't tell us. Actually, the Bible does tell us. It tells us how much God weighs. Not exactly, but it tells us that God is heavy. And the reason I say that is because the Old Testament word glory, which you hear a lot, right? Glory, that kind of word, has its very root in the the idea of something that is heavy. When God's glory is shown, we're shown his heaviness. right? God is a heavy God. He's weighty. But I think our problem can sometimes be that we prefer a lightweight God. A God that isn't quite so demanding, a God that's not quite so hard to follow or or, or quite so awesome. And what I want to try and do this afternoon is, as we look at this, I want us to say, let's allow the weightiness of God to fall on us, to feel that, not to resist that, okay? There will be points this afternoon where we want to resist, right? There'll be points where we go, no, 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 I want a different sort of God. I don't want the God like... Now, let's let God show us what he's really like. Let's allow him. And keeping a finger here, I I just want us to go to Psalm 36, um, because there's a phrase in Psalm 36 which I think will help us to unpack uh, 1 Corinthians. Psalm 36, Psalms is basically in the middle. Open your Bible in the middle, and you'll be in Psalms. If you're not, try again. Uh, until you, until you get to Psalms. And then Psalm 36. It's a very interesting phrase. Um, so Psalm 36, verse 1. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, that literally mean, that, that means they don't see how big God is, or they don't see how weighty God is. They think that God is small. They think he's lightweight. Now look at verse 2. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. 
So in their own eyes, their own view of themselves is so high that they can't see that there's a problem. They can't see any issue. I'm terrific. I think that is a perfect definition of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. This church in Corinth is so full of itself that they can't see their own sin. There is something so significant happening in the church and they don't even have a clue. And I want us to see this up now. I want us to let God's words challenge us to say, let's, let's read this and allow God to expose what may be lurking in our hearts, even in our church. So have a look at chapter 5. Just come back to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Here is the situation, right? Paul has heard a report. He's writing this letter. This is one of the reasons he's writing, because he's heard a report from them, about them. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, the word sexual immorality, we're going to come across this quite a bit in the next uh, few weeks. Not next week, but the week after again. And it's the word porneia in Greek. doesn't take a genius to work out where that word hits our society, right? Porneia. And that is any form of sexual indulgence or sexual pleasure that takes place outside of marriage. God has instituted marriage between one man and one woman for life as the appropriate place for sex to take place, for sexual pleasure to be expressed. Anything that happens outside of that setup is porneia, sexual immorality, whether that is in our thinking or in our acting. It is porneia. Now, already, that's, that's a pretty big thing to say. And Paul says it's reported that sexual immorality among you, but look, in, in Corinth, it's, it's pretty blatant. It's a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Something's happening in the church in Corinth that even the watching world says, that is shocking. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's like one of those puzzles where you have to work out who's related to what's man is sleeping with his foot. Is that his mum? I don't think it probably is his mum. I think it's probably his father has married or got more than one wife and he's sleeping with his father. We don't know if the, if the father is still alive. We don't know if the father is divorced. We don't know anything like that. Here's what we know. It is something that is wrong. In Leviticus 18, God has expressly said, a man shall not have sex with his father's wife. God can't be more clear than that. And here is this church where they're just crossing that boundary. And the watching world says, that is shocking. I think it's really interesting. Our world, even in a sexually permissive society, Corinth was pretty sexually permissive. London is pretty sexually permissive. But even in a sexually permissive society, our world has standards, right? What has been the top news story all week? Our world has standards when it comes to sex. And when Harvey Weinstein steps over what our world says is acceptable, there is massive uproar. Because even a world that's rejected God 
still has standards when it comes to sex. But this isn't happening out there in Hollywood. This is happening within the church. And that is what makes it so shocking. It is so damaging. And can I say this? We've got to be careful to think, well, this is something that well, that could never, ever happen. I don't think it's impossible for sexual immorality that even the world looks at and says is disgusting to be tolerated within churches. It's happened over and over again. Why is there such uproar at historic child abuse within the church? Because there were people in church leadership who did not do what 1 Corinthians 5 said they're to do. And untold damage has been done because sexual immorality, which even the world knows is wrong, was not tolerated, was not dealt with. So this is serious stuff, okay? This is important for us to get our heads around. And I've got three big things we're going to see. And here's the first thing. I just want to show you, work your way through these verses. I I feel a kind of nervousness this afternoon that there's a, I don't want to go beyond what this says. I, I want you to make sure that what I'm saying is what the passage is saying. Here is the first big thing I want to show you. Tolerance is not loving. All right? Tolerance is not loving. You see, although there was this sexual immorality going on within the church, a a man having his father's wife, that's not what Paul's angry about. You've got to see that, right? What is it that Paul is really angry with the church in Corinth about? It's verse 2. This is happening in your church, and you are proud. This is going on, and it doesn't bother you in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it almost becomes a badge of, look how free we are. Look how accepting, look how liberal, look how modern, look how progressive we are as a church. Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? You should have taken that man and removed him from your church, Paul says. You should have been mourning over this. You should have been weeping. This should have caused you sorrow, not pride. That's what Paul is upset about, tolerance. You're tolerating sin. You're acting like it's no big deal at all. Now listen, in our, in our culture, this is really hard for us to hear, because in our culture, it is arrogant to judge people, and it's loving to be tolerant. Paul says it is arrogant to be tolerant and it is loving to judge people. Their pride is what is leading to their tolerance. And so Paul is calling them up. He's saying this really matters. This is a crucial issue for you as a church. And it's as if he looks at the church and says, who's dealing with it? Why is no one dealing with this? There's this vacuum of anyone who's bothered in the church. Which is, I think, why Paul then goes into this weird kind of like, I'm with you in spirit sort of stuff, which to us just sounds a bit weird. I think what he's saying is, your church has got no one who will deal with this. So I, even though I'm absent, I'm going to step into that vacuum. I will take the lead on this. 
I think that's why he's so strong. So look what he says, verse 3. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. I don't think Paul means by that, oh, I'm with you in spirit. In a sort of uh, sentimental, you know, I'm there with you. I think he means I'm actually with you. And I will pass judgment. Because none of you seem to be willing to do it. I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus. But I thought Jesus said, don't judge. I thought Jesus said that we shouldn't judge one another. Well, who does Paul think he is passing judgment? Here's the key phrase, you see it? I pass judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's not passing judgment in his own authority, saying, I think you're wrong. He's saying, Christ says you're wrong. Do you see? That's the difference. I have no authority. Church leaders have no authority. We as Christians have no authority to judge one another. Christ has all authority. And therefore, we look at one, we look, we judge in Christ's name. So verse 4, Paul tells them what to do. When you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Oh man, these are, this is sobering. It doesn't sound loving, right? At what point does it sound loving for me to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hand this person over to Satan. Again, do you see how carefully Paul words this? Paul says, I'm with you in spirit, like I've been saying. He says, I'm going to step in, but it's, the, it's Christ who's there. Do you know, in Matthew 18, Jesus said, oh, let's turn to it, because I, I, I want you to see it. Matthew 18. You know, Jesus, you, you, if you've been around church for long, you'll have heard someone say, normally when, okay, this is what happens, right? Normally, when a church group meets and it's very small, there's only like a few people there, someone encouragingly says, it's okay because Jesus said, uh, where, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And we'll go, it's okay that there's only two or three of us because that's okay. Jesus said it's okay. Can I show you the context he said that? Have a look. Verse 50, chapter, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Here's the key. Don't blast it to the world. You keep it private for as long as possible. You don't publish it to the whole world. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Paul says, when you gather to do this, When you gather to take seriously what is happening, I'm with you. Does that make sense? I know it's a complicated passage, but but this is from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, this is how you deal 
This is how you deal with behavior that is wrong in the church, okay? And I will be there. So when Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, hand this man over to Satan, that's the same as Jesus saying, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Put them outside the church. Right, come back to 1 Corinthians 5. Hand this man over to Satan, this is verse 5, for the destruction of the flesh. That is, hand this man over, the flesh is the sinful nature, so that the sinful nature might be destroyed, so that he might see the seriousness of what he's done. And here's the ultimate goal, so that his spirit may be saved. That is loving. It is loving to, to take sin seriously and to deal with it in this way. Now, can you, can you see this, right? Tolerance is not loving. Look, if we were, if we were on an aeroplane, and, um, you know, on an aeroplane, the, uh, the um, what are they called, the people? Air stu- not air stewardesses. That's used to be cabin, cabin crew. Cabin crew. When the cabin crew do their, here's the exits, here, here, and here. Um, are most people listening? Now, most people are sort of sitting there going, yeah, yeah, whatever, yep, yep, okay. If the plane was hurtling towards the ground and they said the cabin crew are now going to explain what you do in an emergency, you'd listen differently, right? You see that? This is the sort of passage that we read like this and we go, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, that's, that's what we do. Let me tell you, on the day, God forbid, but on the day that we need to do something like this, we will listen to this differently, right? I want us to be under no illusion and I've only had to do this once. But it's one of the hardest things. But we've got to be... It's loving, all right? And we've got to know that. We've got to know. Tolerance is not loving. Here's the second thing. We need to move on. We're going to land some of this stuff in a minute. Here's the second big thing. Freedom... This is going to sound weird, but you, you understand. Freedom is not backwards. That's my second point, all right? Freedom is not backwards. Let's jump down to uh, verse 6. We're going to go on to the next bit. When did you last have a festival, by the way? What was the last festival you celebrated? Because festivals are really important. The whole Christian life is supposed to be one long festival. I'll show you. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. What is he talking? Why suddenly go from, uh, you know, deal seriously with sin? Why suddenly start talking about a festival and bread and unleavened bread and yeast? And why? Well, he's referring to an Old Testament festival. Um, I'm going to show you it. Uh, can you go to Leviticus? Uh, Leviticus 24, 23, page 126. Leviticus uh, 23, page 126. Look at verse 4. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. 
For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day hold a sacred assembly. Do not do any of your ordinary work. For seven days present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day hold a sacred assembly and do not do any of your ordinary work. God is so excited about unleavened bread. He says, I want you to celebrate it for a week. Celebrate unleavened bread for a week. Why? Well, if you come on midweek to our midweek groups, you'll know we're going through Exodus at the moment. And in the book of Exodus, God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt where it was tough and miserable and they're getting beaten up and and cruelly treated, he brings them out of Egypt and he sets them free. Okay. And he says, in order to break the slavery, in order to set you free, a lamb has to die. The, The sacrifice of the lamb buys freedom for the people. God's judgment falls on the lamb, not on the people. So the lamb is sacrificed And the people are set free. It changes their identity. But they're then told, make sure that all your bread has no yeast in it. In fact, no, not yeast. Make sure your bread has no leaven in it. It's different. Here's the difference. Yeast, I mean, yeast is now dried, right? You're getting a little yeasty packet thing. Here's my little packet of yeast sort of thing. That's right, it's in bread. And the yeast, here's the yeast, right? And, And we're like, here's, you know... You put these in the thing. Leaven is not like that. Leaven is something that comes from the previous batch of stuff. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example, because I can see you're all excited about this home economics lesson. When I was younger, there was something called friendship cake. Has anyone... Yes, some, look, some of you have woken up. It's like, yes! Here's friendship. This is what friendship cake For those who are uninitiated, this is friendship cake. It's a cake obviously, but it has yeast in it. And the cake mixture, you kind of feed it sort of various bits and pieces, give it, give it food and flour and stuff, and it grows. And then you make cake from half of the mixture. I'm, I'm a little hazy on the details, if I'm completely honest. <laughs> you make cake from some of the mixture, and then you cook... No, you've done that with the cake. You make cake with some of the mixture, then you... Keep some of the mixture so you can make a cake the next week, but then you give some of the mixture to someone else. That's why it's a friendship cake. And so then then have a bit of thing that keeps growing and you feed it and they make a cake and they hand it on. And it gets passed on and on and on. It sounds terrific, doesn't it? It's not. It's, it's horrendous. And it's horrendous because firstly the cake was disgusting. It didn't even taste nice. And every week it's like there's such a pressure it's grown again. I've got to make another cake. I don't want any more cakes. It's just there. It's just grown. But here's the big deal with the friendship cake. You have no idea where it's been. You have no idea where that stuff, who's had it, who's dribbled in it, you know, who's kind of like fiddled around in it, who's passed it on. It just keeps getting passed on and on and on. It's horrendous. That's why God says celebrate unleavened bread. He never said had a friendship cake. He would have been very anti-friendship cake, right? (laughs) Very, very against friendship cake. It's all about the unleavened because when you leave Egypt, you don't take any of Egypt with you. When you leave Egypt, you leave everything behind. You don't take it with you. Egypt stays in Egypt. 
You are no longer there. You leave that behind. You get rid of that because you are now a new people. You are a set free people. You are no longer Egypt people. That was symbolized for them in the unleavened bread. And so God said to his people, you celebrate your freedom from Egypt by saying, we don't want any of your friendship cake contaminating our new identity. And that's what God is saying. So have a look down there. Let me read it again, and you'll see uh, what I mean. Verse 7. Get rid, of old, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread of Egypt, leavened with malice and wickedness, not evil and wickedness, that's Egypt's bread, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You pursue a new life of purity, not a life of wickedness. It's new. You're a new person. So here's the deal, right? If you are a Christian, your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The one who paid to buy your freedom has shed his blood. His blood has been poured out. His head was pierced. His hands and feet were pierced. His side has been pierced. The blood has flowed. The Passover lamb is Christ. He has been sacrificed for you. He has bought your freedom from Egypt. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer ruled by evil and wickedness. That is gone. It's no longer you. You have been made new. Now you need to be who you are. Now you need to live it. And you have to look forwards, not backwards. Here's the deal, right? Freedom is not backwards. When God's people were set free from Egypt, do you know where they kept looking? Back to Egypt. Oh, we were free in Egypt. Do you remember how good... Remember how good life was in Egypt, they said? In fact, get this right. They even appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt. Can you take us back? We'd like to go back to the place of slavery. What? And yet that's what we're like. This is, this is how we operate. We think that freedom is found in sin. We think that, we, that freedom is found in our old life. And we look at it and we say, being a Christian is just so rubbish. It's so hard. I can't do this and I can't look at oh, look at Egypt. Egypt just looks so terrific. And Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of Egypt. And can I say, we do not help ourselves if we keep feeding our minds and our eyes and our hearts stuff of Egypt. If we keep watching things that promote a lifestyle that is not godly, of course our hearts are going to long for Egypt. Why do we do that? I think it's one of the things that's really struck me this week about the Harvey Weinstein thing. Hollywood is in uproar about the sexual immorality of Harvey Weinstein. Rightly. What an evil, disgusting way to behave. And yet it's the same place that produces things like Game of Thrones that says, here's a lifestyle. Let's celebrate sexual immorality and sexual violence towards women. And then when it's replicated, everybody goes, that's shocking. 
What is wrong with us? Why do we feed ourselves this sick stuff that's polluting us rather than saying, that's not who I am. I'm this. Freedom is not backwards. Now look, I'm not trying to lay down rules, okay? I'm not trying to say what we should and shouldn't watch. I'm only picking Game of Thrones out of the air as one example. But I want us to question. I want us to question, not just to feed ourselves stuff. The language is, verse 7, get rid of it. Not nibble it. Not enjoy it a little bit. Get rid of it. Freedom is not backwards. Tolerance is not loving. Freedom is not backwards. Freedom is found here. Let us keep the festival in sincerity and truth. Let's pursue purity. Let's enjoy things that are pure. Let's celebrate things that are pure. Let's help each other. I say to you, I stand here before you as a man who fails in this area a lot. I watched it, Linda and I watched a TV series the other day, and I got to the end of it, I thought, I just don't think we should have watched that. That's, we've got to, you know, that's so, we've got to be honest about that and say we make mistakes, we get it wrong, but Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, so there's freedom and there's grace. But let's at least think about it. Okay, one more thing. I, I realize I don't have a watch of any sort. Mark, okay, we're all right, I can see yours, yours is nice and big. Last thing. Tolerance is not loving. Freedom is not backwards. Thirdly, outside is not the problem. Outside is not the problem. This is the last bit of the passage. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. (laughs) In other words, Paul says, look, you've misunderstood. I wrote to you and said, don't have anything to do with sexually immoral people. You shut the doors and went, fine, we'll keep them out. Paul says, the trouble is you've locked them all in. They're all in here. And in no way should we be the ones who are looking outside and saying, oh, the problem's out there, it's out there, it's out there. No. The problem is in us. Jesus made this very clear. He says, from within, out of men's hearts, comes sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires. From within. And we think, well, if I can just shut it out, and this is where the kind of, if I can just not watch, you know, bad stuff, then I'll be all right. But that sort of thinking is to completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying. It misunderstands where the problem lies. The problem isn't out there. The problem's inside. The problem's in our hearts. It's within. And therefore, the solution to our problem is not to keep our eyes focused outside and say, well, if I can just keep it out. The problem is to look inward at our hearts. It's so easy, isn't it, to keep pointing the finger at what's going on in the world and to shake our heads in disgust and despair. And Paul says, stop doing that. Look at verse 11. He says, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. Now you need to look inside the church. We need to be aware of what's going on. But notice what he does in verse 11. 
because suddenly he broadens it away from just porneia, away from just sexual immorality. And look, suddenly he says, those who are greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. You see, suddenly Paul says the purity of the church matters so much that any sin is not acceptable. We shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, who cares? But the, the problem is, as I read that list, I say, but, but that's me. All of us are failures. All of us have failed in these areas. Does that mean that we should just kind of have nothing to do with each other? What, what does Paul mean? Now, Paul is referring to those who are proud of their sin, those who say, I'm a sinner, those who have no concern about their sin, those who live their lives in blatant rebellion against God and who do not care. Those who don't know what it is to mourn over their sin, to be sad over their sin. You see, the mark of a true Christian is not that they're perfect. The mark of a true Christian is that when they sin, it grieves them. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. All of us sin. All of us fail. But the true Christian is someone who knows what it is to feel sorrow over that. And Paul says for those who refuse to feel sorry, for those who are proud of their sin, for those who go on living in that have nothing to do with that. Do not even associate, don't even eat with them. So Paul says don't look at the world, stop looking at Harvey Weinstein and worrying about him. God will judge him. God will judge those outside the church. You don't have to worry about that. But we should be concerned about ourselves. We should be looking into our own hearts, into our own church, and we should be examining to see the sin that lurks here, and we should not be tolerating it. That might even get to the lengths, the extreme lengths, where it may occasionally be necessary to expel a wicked person from among us. Someone who says, yes, I follow Jesus, but their life completely denies it, and they are proud. These are serious things, but that is because sin is serious. Because you have been rescued from Egypt by Christ our Passover lamb, and we no longer live for that anymore. We've been made new. We are a new people, a new batch of dough, and we are to live this new life with a passion and a purity. Here is the big thing I want us to get as we leave church. Here's the thing I want us most for Globe Church as we read this passage, it is that we would be a church who has a shared passion for purity. That we would be excited, that we would be passionate, that we would be committed to pursuing purity. Lives where we are getting rid of sin and where we are living for Christ. I think that's exciting. That's what God is calling us to. To that sort of a passion. So as we finish, let me just land this. I've got three things just to um, apply this. Let me try and be practical. Firstly, can we, let's talk. Can we talk about this stuff? I think most of the stuff at the time, we, we hide away our sin, don't we? we? We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to be honest about our failings because, let's face it, we want people to be impressed by us. And if I'm honest about what's really going on in my heart, then you might not think I'm such a great Christian anymore. 
you might not be quite impressed so impressed do you not see that is a corinthian problem that's what's happening in the church in corinth they want to be impressive they want to look good and therefore they will not be honest about their sin we have got to fight that this obsession with wanting to be impressive will kill us as a church because we'll never be honest can we instead be honest with each other not covering up but telling each other the battles that we have so that we can help each other let's talk perhaps there's stuff in your life that you've never been honest with anyone about would you be willing to be honest with someone to tell them your struggle to tell them how you are struggling with sin not in a way that makes us think oh you struggle with it too oh that's terrific that makes me feel better we're not trying to affirm one another we're trying to hate sin so that we might live lives of real purity for jesus let's talk about it but let's not just talk about it let's also pray about this stuff let's have a passionate commitment to pray to pray for our own purity heavenly father please by your holy spirit would you make us pure please would you make my heart pure help me to fight sin help me to see it and to hate it and to fight it and to get rid of it in my life and as you look around at your focus group or the people who are in church around us let's be praying help them to live life that's pure let's talk about it let's pray about it who could you commit to pray for this week and then let's take action Let's do something. The command that Paul gives in this passage is very clear. Get rid of the old yeast. What is it? What is it in your life that is a constant snare to you? That you keep going back to it. It keeps tripping you up. The same thing again and again and again. What would it look like for you to get rid of it? Is there something on your computer that you need to get rid of? There's something in your life that needs to be smashed up. And smashed up in a commitment to say, Jesus, I prefer you. You are my Passover lamb. I belong to you now. I don't want that anymore in my life. Is there a commitment to say, we're going to stop watching this particular thing. We're going to stop going to this particular place. I'm going to stop doing this particular thing. Jesus, please help me and let's take action. This isn't going to happen by accident. We need to be a church that is committed to taking ruthless, radical action with sin. Get rid of it. So here's 1 Corinthians 5. Tolerance is not loving. Backwards is not freedom. And outside is not the problem. Oh, Father God, please... May we as a church have a shared passion for purity. May we live this for the sake of Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed. Please help us to talk, to pray and to act that we might be your new, redeemed, pure people. For Jesus' sake. Amen.